Now we're going to read just from the scriptures. We're going to turn again to 1 Peter chapter 3. And we're going to read from verse 8. And we'll come right down to verse 18. So the Bible reading for today, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, right through to verse 18. First Peter chapter 3 and we're at verse 8. Finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another. Love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous, not rendering evil for evil, or reeling for reeling, but countrywise blessing, knowing that ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil, and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him ensue evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. And who is he that will harm you, if ye be followers of that which is good? But, and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your heart. And be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience, that whereas they speak evil of you, as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. For it is better, if the will of God be so, that ye suffer for well-doing, than for evil doing. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Amen. We'll end the reading there at verse 18, and we pray God will stamp with his own approval and blessing this reading of the Holy Scriptures. Now my text this morning is taken from First Peter chapter 3 and the verse 15 and my subject today is God's counsel in the midst of conflict. Now Peter remember has been dealing with the subject of submission chapter 2 verse 13 right through to chapter 3 verse 12. And in this section, he has dealt with three areas or spheres in which we are to display this concept of submission. In the area of the workplace, in the home, and in the church. Now he's moving on a little. He is shifting his emphasis from the subject of submission to the whole spirit of submission. Even in a world full of suffering and persecution, there has to be submission to Christ. Having told us what to do, he is now telling us the way to do it. 
And there can be no doubt that the people in Peter's day were having a difficult time. They were despised, scandalized, labelled a dangerous sect that needs to be carefully monitored and resisted. These people sadly were enduring uh, verbal and physical abuse. And we have a right to ask, well, why? What were they doing wrong? And the answer is nothing. They were suffering because they were followers of Jesus Christ. Christ was their Lord and Redeemer. That was the profession of their faith. And it's important that you grasp this. They were verbally and physically abused all because they were Christians. Now the world of the first century is no different from the world of the 21st century. This anti-God, anti-Christ age is no friend to the true believer in Jesus Christ. We shouldn't expect the world to help us or to honour us. We should expect the world, this anti-God age, to, to hate and be hostile to the church and the people of God. And if you understand biblical history, and if you understand even church history, I would encourage you to read the Foxer's Book of Martyrs, and you'll discover that down through the centuries, from the dawn of time, true followers of Jesus Christ, all who loved him with their heart, their soul, their mind, and their strength, all who were loyal to him could expect nothing from this world but hostility, slander, abuse, ridicule, and persecution. Now, now here's Peter's question. How can you cope with such conflict? Last Lord's Day, we dealt with persevering in the midst of persecution. How to cope and deal with conflict. Now today I want to move on and think about another aspect, God's counsel in the midst of conflict. Not only God's watch care, but God's counsel in the midst of conflict. You see, the truth is, and I'm speaking about myself, I'm in front of the line, most of us are big cowards when it comes to any type of pain or any type of suffering. Humanly speaking, Peter, remember, the one who's writing this epistle, he was the one who denied the Lord three times with oaths and cursings all in front of a little girl. And Peter learned he himself had no strength or ability by his own power to uh, be, be true to his love for Christ. You see, there is a fear of suffering in all of us. Now, God's people in Peter's day were facing real, intense suffering. And Peter's a realist. And he's anxious for them that they, 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 they wouldn't be overwhelmed by that suffering. That they wouldn't be overcome by their trials. That, that they weren't terrorized by the ungodly to retreat or to go into a stance of silence. And I believe he gave them the key to victory, the key to peace in the midst of a troubled world. And that key, that counsel, I believe is found in verse 15. All of us know life has its trials and troubles. And life's trials and troubles can either draw us closer to the Lord and lead to a strengthening of the Christian faith or 
Life's trials and troubles could drive us from the Lord. They can leave us in a mental and a spiritual weak and wrecked state. And the answer or the question is, can we know peace and purity and power from God despite living in a cruel world? And the answer is yes. Hi. And here's what I would say to you. This is what I would suggest. Learn God's counsel in the midst of a cruel world. Listen to verse 15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh your reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Now in a cruel world, God not only cares for his people, but God has got counsel. He's got advice. This is what I want you to ponder and consider. This is what I want you to do. And the first piece of advice, counsel, is this. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Note the word but. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. In the context, be not afraid of their terror. Neither be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And what is that saying to us? It says have a regard for true spirituality. Notice the person referred to. The Lord God. I want you to grasp this. You see his counsel for those in conflict. Is not compromise with those who trouble you and terrorize you. It's certainly not to converse and dialogue with them. And and try to reach the lowest common denominator. It's not about you having great personal spiritual courage. It's not about adopting the, the British stiff upper lip. It's not about your state of mind. It, it's not about an inward moral disposition or, or, or your ability at all. The key is to have a regard for true spirituality. You see, here's a call. Here's a counsel to sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And the person referred to is the Lord God. Now, now ask yourself, when you read this in the Bible, folks, let, let us not just be words this morning. What does this actually mean? Is it not a reference to recognize, to, to have a regard for? To, to have an eye to the absolute holiness of God. The Bible speaks of God in these words. In Exodus 15 and in the verse 13. That he's glorious in holiness. The word sanctify here has to do with. Setting apart, declaring holy. The word sanctify can sometimes mean to make holy. But, but, it, but in this sense, it's declaring holiness. Here's a call to declare, to recognize that God is absolutely holy in all his dealings with us. And we lift therefore our Trials and 
temptations, our trials and troubles, even the fiery trial, we lift them up and we see them in light of the absolute holiness of God. Because that's the chief attribute of God. He is glorious in holiness. And every other attribute is, has holiness at its heart. It's a call, to put it simply for the young people, to consider and confess that God is holy. That God is the Lord God. That he is an absolute sovereign control. You see, often in trials and troubles, we lose sight of the Lord, don't we? Where is the Lord in all this that's happening to me? We question his dealings with us especially in trouble. Our minds can become clouded and full of doubt. Why did the Lord bring all this into my life? Why am I always in such trouble? Why does the devil seem to have so much power today? Why has the devil's forces free reign to do whatever they like? Think of 20,000 in Belfast yesterday supporting um, a, a, a change in the uh, status of biblical marriage. Many illustrations can be used. Let me just use two. Think of Gideon. Way over there in Judges chapter 6 and in the verse 12, the angel of the Lord comes to Gideon and this is what he says. The Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valour. Judges 6 and 12. Now, now, now think of that for a moment. Here's a wonderful experience. Uh, imagine the thrill and joy in Gideon's soul. And then an angel has come and told me something. I've got a word. The Lord is with me. And that's a great comfort. And he's told me something else. He called me a mighty man of valour. Imagine that. Me. A mighty man of valour. Now how did Gideon answer? Listen to what he says in verse 13. And Gideon said unto him, Oh my Lord, if the Lord be with us, why then is all this befallen us? Do you see what's happening here in Gideon's mind? We're given a little insight. There's a spirit of frustration because of circumstances and situations. There's a bitterness in his soul. Gideon must feel that God has forsaken, that God has forgotten to be gracious, that God has failed, and he's beginning to doubt God. He's really asking, how could all these difficult circumstances come and stand around me like obstacles? And as he looked upon them, they were clouding the judgment of his mind in relation to the Lord. His heart is down and he's full of defeat and therefore he begins to doubt God. And one of the things that we doubt about God, not only his love, not only that he is with us, but we doubt that God is holy. We doubt that God is right in all his doings and we lose sight of that truth and we delve into despair and we become full of fear and therefore we murmur and therefore we complain. Doesn't it grieve our hearts when wicked men flourish in the country with no restraint or constraint? And what do we do when wicked men flourish? 
we rush to a conclusion. Why has all this befallen us? And begin to doubt God. But let's remember this morning, and this is Peter's argument, remember that God is absolutely holy. Take that into your mind. Act upon that truth. Now let me give you another illustration. Think of Asaph in um, Psalm 73. You see, Asaph said in Psalm 73 verse 1, listen to these words, Truly God is good to Israel, even to such as of our clean heart. But as for me, you can read it in verse 2. Now, now get the picture. God is good. Good to Israel. Good to his people, the church. But as for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped. You see, he, he, he was feeling down. He was at the depths of despair. He was taking into his mind the, the, the prosperity of wicked men. He was thinking about wicked men flourishing in the land. And he's arguing in his own mind, these wicked people, they're not in trouble like me. They don't have any worries that I have. They have no trials in the workplace. They're not persecuted because they're godly and because they're Christ-like. And the devil came and tormented his mind. You see, we're, we're at a day and a stage when the devil even would tell us in the house of God on a Sabbath morning, you're wasting your time going to church. You, you're, you're playing a fool's game. It, it, it's, it's of no benefit to you. Your religion is empty. Your church has no future. You, you're doomed to fail. And you see, when your life is full of trials and troubles and you face agony and heartache and the devil comes and whispers all these lies into our mind, we begin to believe them. And that's what Asaph was doing. And that's why he's talking the way he's talking. He's really having a pity party with his own soul. But listen to what he says in verse 16 and 17. When I thought to know this, it was too painful for me. He, he couldn't handle it. And verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then understood I their end. The word until changes it. In the sanctuary of God, he discovered there's a payday coming for wicked men. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. The Bible says the soul that sinneth, it shall die, Ezekiel 18 and 22. There's a day of judgment coming, a day of reckoning. Why is this day of reckoning coming? Why is there a judgment day? Because God is holy. And he is calling God's people in their mind to set apart the Lord God who is absolutely and intrinsically holy. Remember that truth. Have a regard for that truth. Recognize that truth. Isn't that the call of Peter earlier in chapter 1? Whenever he says in chapter 1 and verse um, 
15, but he which has called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. The word conversation means living. Because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. You see, when we face trials, we're tempted not only to, to doubt that God is holy and right in all his dealings with us, but, but we're, we're tempted to disregard and dismantle God's standards. You see, let's ask this question. What is the church standard today? The church standard is this, that the Lord God is glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders. God's holy standard is the standard of the church. It's the standard of the true Christian. And therefore, because of God's absolute holiness, we repudiate all relativism in moral conduct. We, we repudiate all worldly values. We, we repudiate all situation ethics. What is right is what God says is right. Think of what God says in the Ten Commandments. And what is wrong is what God says is wrong. And if God says that homosexuality is a vile sin, then what God says is right and what God says is true. And that's the standard for the church. That's the standard for the Christian. Now that's not popular. And that's not what people want to hear, I know. But that's one of the marks, I believe, of a true Christian. The true Christian standard is God's standard. The true Christian deals in absolute facts. God is. He deals with the fact that God is holy, intrinsically and absolutely holy. He deals with the fact that, that God has spoken. This is what God says. You see, once you're born again and indwelt by the Spirit of God and made a, a new creature in Christ, God's standard has to become your standard. And you will have an eye to please the Lord. And like David, you'll be brought to the place where you will say, I hate every false way. And you'll put forth the truth. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. And I want to tell you, when you begin to please God, your ways will not please men. And your ways might even please your brothers and your sisters in the church. And, and sometimes even as a Christian in the church, you'll feel abused. And you'll feel that you're being disliked. And you'll feel that you're uh, sort of uh, kicked around in a sense like a football amongst people as far as their conversation is concerned. But the true Christian at all times is to have a high regard for God as his absolute standard. A high regard for God's word to esteem his precepts to be true and perfect. You see... This recognition, this regard, this reverence for the Lord God in the heart and in the life is the only thing that will help us overcome the fear of man. The Bible tells us in Proverbs 9 and 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. How do you cope with conflict? How do you overcome your fear and your doubt and your worry? Get your eyes on the Lord. Who he is. What he is like. Get, get a sight of the holiness of God. No, no longer relying on yourself. Not worried about your opponents or, or worried about their opinions. 
boldness to live and walk and talk with your eye on the Lord. Notice also the place. If you look again at our text, it says, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. That means having a heart concern for the Lord God. You see, let me just say this this morning. If Christianity hasn't reached your heart, then truthfully, you're not saved. You're not a Christian. We live in a day of externalism. What people say with their lips, what they do with their life. Their announcements and their actions. The Lord Jesus dealt with this very subject based on the prophecy of Isaiah. Over there in Isaiah chapter uh, 29 and in the uh, verse uh, 13, he says this, Isaiah 29 and 13. Wherefore the Lord said, For as much as this people draw near to me with their mouth and, their, and with their lips do they honour me, but have removed their heart far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the precept of men. Now the Lord Jesus took this up in Matthew chapter 15, verses 7 and 8, and he said this. This is an interesting application. He says, um, in Matthew 15 and 7 and 8, he, he, he says, Ye hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoureth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. You see, here's the curse of false religion. Isn't this the overwhelming sin of our day? People paying lip service to the house of God. People paying lip service to the word of God, the day of God. Lip service to God himself as a person. Lip service to Christ. Ah, don't take that seriously. Don't let it impact in your life. Don't, don't let it be a factor in your lifestyle choices. And here's the counsel. There needs to be a real sanctifying experience in the heart. Because that's the only cure and counteraction of false religion. Therefore a miracle of grace is needed. The Bible says naturally speaking, Jeremiah 17 and 9, The heart is deceitful and above all things desperately wicked who can know it. And that's the source of human sin and wickedness. Our heart. And we can be self-orientated and self-centered. And the truth is, when God in grace saves a man, he touches his heart. He gives him a new heart. And here's a question for us this morning. I've challenged myself with this. Has the gospel changed our heart? Has the gospel made us a new creature? And there can be no salvation unless God is enthroned in the heart, where Christ is Lord. You see, that's where God starts. Men deal with the outside. Men want a religion that's man-centered, that's all for man's convenience. But God didn't make true Bible religion for man's convenience. Man's heart must be brought to the place 
where it's set in the Lord. Remember his counsel even to the young people. My son, give me thy heart. And you see, young people today, the Lord doesn't want just your lip service. He wants your heart. And he wants your heart in such a way that God in Christ is enthroned on it. And that's what this call is all about. Because when God saves us, he saved us to glorify him. Aren't we saved for the praise of the glory of his grace? Isn't that what he taught in Ephesians 1, uh, verses 4 down to 12? Uh, Lord, why did you pick me? Lord, why did you uh, uh, predestinate me? Uh, Lord, uh, what's your purpose in saving me? Saving any of us to the praise of the glory of my grace. That's his answer. And therefore, that dictates what a Christian can do and what a Christian can't do. What's man's chief end? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's a simple thing. But you know, that's the strictest thing. Some of you one Christmas bought me a little plaque. I think it's still in our bathroom, maybe, um, to, to do with the glory of God. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. And that's the overriding question. Whether it's the church, whether it's presbytery, whether it's us as an individual quest, uh, uh, individual Christian, why am I doing this? Is this for the glory of God? Because God must be at the center of all that we do. And a new heart will have a concern his chief desire will be for the glory of God. And where does the glory of God shine the most? In the face of Jesus Christ. Christ reign and rule in the heart. Christ is the center of my life. Can you say that this morning? Christ controls my life. And I get fresh glimpses daily of him. And, and I want my life to be full of him. And I'm satisfied with him. Do you know, folks, whenever it's hard to pray, and there are times like that, and it's hard to cope with trials and troubles, especially if your life's a struggle and you're in bodily pain and you're in agony and you're facing things that, 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 that's real and raw in your experience, and you find it hard at those times to read and get a word from God, what do you need? What's going to lift your spirit? What's going to help you and encourage you? A sight of the Saviour in the fullness of his person and work. And you see, that's, that's what Peter's getting at. He, he, he wants us to see Christ in all this. But in order to see Christ, Christ has to be enthroned on our heart. And it's only the Lord who gives us a new heart that's got a desire for his glory. Now that's really my first point. I want you to notice secondly, and I'll be very brief with these next two points. Have a regard not only for true spirituality, but have a regard for timely speech. Notice the text and it says, And be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you to your reason of the hope that is in you. We'll pause there. Remember, Peter is dealing with people who are suffering for Jesus Christ. They're being verbally and physically abused. And he says, be ready always to give an answer. The word answer, we could sort of think of somebody asking us a question, are you saved? 
And you would say, yes, I am. And we think that that's what he means. And I, I sort of scantily last week dealt with that. But the word answer actually means defense. Be ready always to give an, an a defense. You see, the word here is uh, really the word apologetics in the Greek. And if I could put it in this way, Peter's saying to them, don't let your fear of persecution, don't let your fear of problems, don't let your fear of reprisals put you off from a firm stand for Jesus Christ. Even if you're brought to court and formally charged and put in jail for being a Christian, don't recant. Don't renounce Christ. Bear a testimony. Give a good defense to the great hope that you have in Christ. That's what he's saying. He's saying, I want you to stand true to me without any apology. Don't be wishy-washy. Don't be a card. If you have sanctified the Lord God in your heart, then you will speak for the Lord God with your life and with your lip. And you'll do so all because you've got a true and certain hope in Christ. And when he mentions the word hope here, it's hope in Christ that he's referring to. It's a personal hope. It's a peculiar hope. It ties in with the blessed hope of Christ's return. It's a powerful hope because it grips you. It gets into your soul. It becomes part of you. Be ready always to give an answer. Be ready to give a defense. You see, it's a call for unwavering fidelity. It's marked by a spirit of boldness. The church shouldn't be in retreat. The Christians shouldn't be in the back foot. The hallmark of the early church was one full of boldness. Why? Because the Lord God was sanctified in the heart. And the Spirit of God was at work. Let me give you an illustration. I want you to think of a, a young lady that went to a finishing school for girls. She was a high-born young lady. And in that finishing school for girls in the south of England, she was taken along to a gospel meeting and she was gloriously saved. And she wrote back to her father and told him that she had got saved. And she told him that she was laying aside for everything for Jesus Christ. The father wrote back and said, I want you to come home immediately, girl. That, that sort of stuff's for the low-born. That's for the uneducated. But, but it's not for your class or station in life. So whenever she came home, having packed her bags into the house, met with the father. He, he told her, he gave her an ultimatum. He said, I want you to leave this house or renounce Christ. And that young girl had a hard night. And she had many tears. But she was determined. I'm not going to give up Christ. I'm not going to turn my back on the Savior. She had her bag packed, sitting at the door. Before she left her room, she had a piano in her room. The room was big enough, one of these big fancy houses. And she sat down at the piano and started to play. And she started to play that lovely hymn, Jesus, I, my cross have taken. And as she sang, because she was a beautiful singer, as well as played, the father heard it. And as she left her case to go out the door, he stopped her, tears rolling down his face. And he said, I just want you to know I've come to Christ myself. Now, th that's a good illustration. 
But I want to tell you, God brought that young girl to the place where her allegiance to Christ was first, second, third, nothing else mattered. And she was prepared to leave that home and that lifestyle and give up much by way of riches, all for the honor of Christ. And that's what it means. Once you sanctify the Lord God in your heart, you'll be ready always to give him a defense, not just by your speech, but by your very lifestyle. And one final thing. Have a regard for thoughtful standing. Notice the words meekness and fear at the end. Remember, meekness is not weakness. Meekness has to do with the true spirit of humility, coupled with the fear of God. If the fear of God's in your heart and gets a grip, you'll not fear the face of man. The fear of man is real. It's a big bogey for the church. But, but the fear of man can be overcome by the fear of God, because the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And if we fear God first, then we'll want to live for his honour and for his glory. But as we live for the honour and glory of God and seek to set it a defence for the faith, notice this, we'll do so with meekness. Underline that word. Because you know what that tells me? That's the absence of a proud, arrogant self, assertive spirit. There, there, there are many people filled with a proud, arrogant self-assurance in their own ability and power. I can do it. I, I let them have it with both barrels. But the word meekness means that we don't trust in the flesh. The flesh profit us nothing. Remember the psalmist, give me help in trouble, Lord, for vain is the help of man. We're set about by our own weakness. And we're to look to Christ. We need him in the hour of need. And therefore we must consider him. Our strength, our ability, our speech. It all comes from the grace and help of God. And that's our truthful standing with meekness and with fear. Now, that's the need of the hour. That's his counsel in the midst of conflict. Oh, that the Lord would give us all a true spirituality. Have we sanctified the Lord God in our hearts? May the Lord fill us with timely speech with the strength and the ability to give a defense of the faith. And may the Lord give us this truthful standing so that when others see us, aren't we meant to be little Christs in the church? Isn't it true that people can come in from the outside and they don't see Christ reflected in us? They see hypocrisy. They, they see sin. They, they, they see a bad testimony. And that's what influences them. Oh, that they would see Christ in us, the hope of glory. May the Lord take these few thoughts and bless them to our hearts.